0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton and today we're going to talk to Brittany Luby about her history of natural resource development in the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe in northwestern Ontario on the border with eastern Manitoba. Dr. Luby is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Guelph. She is the many greats granddaughter of the Anishinaabe chief who signed the Northwest Angle Treaty of 1873. In addition to her scholarship, Dr. Louie has also written two children's books about historical encounters one about Jacques Cartier's first expedition to North America in 1534 and his encounter with the Stadaconian fisher. Today, we are going to talk about her book, Damned. The Politics of Loss and Survival in Anishinaabe Territory, published by the University of Manitoba Press in 2020. Brittany, thank you so much for joining us today. And I understand that your dad, Alan Louie, a former chief, has also joined us for today's interview to accompany you in answering the first few questions.
1: Well, thank you so much for having us, Greg.
0: I think it would be great if you could introduce your dad more formally to us.
1: So I'm here with my dad, Alan Luby Ogima, and I wanted to invite him to join this podcast today as the man who introduced me to the Norman Dam. When I was little, we used to drive over to the Dairy Queen. We'd grab our ice cream cones and then take the truck down the road to sit and watch the water. And Dad taught me about how the Norman Dam influenced flows and what those flows meant for my family. As a teenager, Dad started bringing me out to the odd negotiating table with Canada and Ontario, and my understanding of what this river meant for our people, past and present, really deepened. And so this was my first opportunity to invite Dad to sit at a table and share his stories with me, so I'm grateful for that opportunity. But the other reason I really wanted to bring Dad with me today is to help live and enliven one of my goals for Damned. With this book, I really wanted to humanize the story of hydroelectric development. I wanted to complicate Canadian talks around supposedly clean energy. And I think one of the best ways to make stories relatable is to talk about our relatives and our relations. So this story uh, doesn't end with me, and it certainly didn't begin with me. Dad's helping us keep it connected.
0: Well, Alan Luby Ogamop, thank you for joining us today.
2: Oh, miigwetch. It's my pleasure to be here. and it's, uh, I'm actually quite proud of my daughter and, and her book, so I'm, I'm actually excited. Thank you.
0: Well, Damned is a history of the very area that you're both from. Can you tell us about your family and this history?
2: Well, I, I can start with that. I was wondering about this uh, a little earlier today, and I suppose the the closest that I can get to that history is the stories of things that happened 400 years ago between the Sioux and the Anishinaabe. And so that's about the oldest uh, legend or story that we have, and, and then there's a number of other ones since that time. And so, yeah, our family's been here since time immemorial, and um, we've hunted, we've fished, uh, we negotiated treaties in our community we had the first school uh, because we recognized the need for education um, and um, had a very active economy uh, and everybody was very well off at, uh, when, you, when you look at comparables of the time and uh, yeah and the history of we'll get into a little bit more about the book and the history to our community and what happened but uh, yeah that's uh, that's our background.
0: Well, for those listeners who've never visited Kenora or Lake of the Woods or the Winnipeg River that flows out of the northern part of Lake of the Woods, how would you describe this area?
2: Uh, again, I was thinking a little bit about this, and, and if you were to say it in one word, it would have to be unforgettable. Um, there's an abundance of water, wildlife, uh, you know, forests, lakes, islands, Um, You know, you you see osprey, you see eagles, you see owls, you see loons, ducks, geese. Uh, The lakes and rivers are, you know, they have sturgeon, walleye, northern pike, bass, sunfish. You you know, they're just suckers, all kinds of of, uh, wildlife. So, And there's nothing like just being out there and and sitting on the edge of the water and listening to the, the waves lap up against the shoreline. Um, you know, it's one of my favorite things to do. In fact, it's about late September, the last warm day of the year, quite often I'll take my boat and I'll, I'll head out in the lake and do about a 140 mile trip by myself when there's not even a soul around. And it's amazing how when you, when you sit there, how you become, uh, the animals in the, in the ducks, because I haven't seen anybody for a few weeks, they just don't even notice you're there. It's, It's a really interesting time.
0: Well, in fact, Alan, you and Brittany are talking to me from Treaty 3 territory right in that area right now. Is that right?
1: That is correct, and it's my favorite place to be.
0: Well, the book focuses on a very serious subject, and that's the impact of hydroelectric development. I think many Canadians are aware of of the huge disruption that was caused by hydroelectric development in Northern Quebec and in Northern Manitoba, but they're not as familiar with what happened in Ontario. So you focus on this particular part of the country that is uh, Northwestern Ontario and the industries that were spawned as a result of that hydroelectric development and the impact on the people in the area, in particular, the Anishinaabe. As our witness to yesterday, tell us about the arrival of European Canadians in this area through perhaps the eyes of your paternal great-great-great-great-grandfather, who was also a chief uh, and who lived between 1820 and 1914.
1: So my many great grandfather was one of the negotiators for treaty number three, that agreement between the crown and the Anishinaabe peoples that was to share the land and make sure that we could live well together. And I think one thing that Canadians sometimes forget about the negotiation of treaty number three in particular, uh, you know, it came fairly quickly after confederation in 1867, and at this particular moment in time, Canadians were uh, afraid of American annexation, and so they really did need this peace treaty, these alliances, the ability to connect pre-existing colonies in hopes of sharing resources that could be mobilized. And so, so this treaty w- was essential to them, and they weren't negotiating necessarily from a strong point. The Anishinaabe by contrast in this region, it was a strong and healthy population with access to numerable resources. Simon J. Dawson, for example, one of the surveyors sent through in the 1850s and 1860s spoke uh, about the abundance of food in the territory. Um, and how this meant that they were independent of the crown. They weren't reliant. And some of the early federal surveyors coming through were really interested in trying to gauge our population. They estimated there are around 3,000 peoples, uh, living in the territory and that these people could also be a potential threat. They recognized that the Anishinaabe were seasoned warriors having battled for, for generations with the Dakota, the Sioux. Um, And so I don't think my great-great-great-grandfather was thinking that he was negotiating from a place of of weakness, right? That slow taking away of power, that death by 1,000 paper cuts came after the Indian Act of 1876. And what I think my many great-grandfathers saw uh, with the arrival of settlers was opportunity, right? Opportunity to share resources, opportunity to grow the economy. And I think these hints of a growth-oriented mindset exist in our records of treaties. So if you look at records of the oral negotiations, some of the European seeds that people are demanding, like winter wheat, for example, could be planted immediately after the Manomen, um or wild rice harvest. So this wasn't about assimilating into a foreign economy. It was about you know, building your existing economy, inserting winter wheat, this European crop, into pre-existing seasonal rounds so that you could sell food that would be demanded by, you know, um, demanded by incoming people to them. I really do think that this was seen as an opportunity for for economic growth. What do you think, Dad?
2: Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, As a young person – I spent a lot of time, to talk, a lot of time talking to the elders about this very thing. Um, our family left the reserve a number of years ago, and I'm the fifth generation, I believe, of entrepreneur in our family. Uh, and when we when we look back at this, you know, my my ancestors they negotiated, they put in a school, they trained translators. Uh, the elders told me that we were supposed to. Share in the benefit, sharing the jobs, sharing the ownership, and sharing the benefits of all the developments that were supposed to come. Um, you know, and that it was supposed to be a mile long swath going through because people really wanted to open up the West. They were coming down from James Bay, they wanted to open up the West. Uh, and so, and they weren't supposed to do major infrastructure projects without consulting, mitigating, compensating. It was a negotiations. Uh, and unfortunately, over time, again, it was uh, the, the interpretation of the treaty was uh, recorded differently than what the Paypalm Treaty speaks of, and we landed where we are today.
1: Mm-hmm. And just to jump in here um, and clarify for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the phrase Papom Treaty, so Treaty Number no. 3 is also really unique in that we have the English written version of Treaty Number no. 3 as published by Canada. But our Anishinaabe leadership recognized that Crown agents thought differently than our people. And so they hired uh, a Métis translator named Joseph Nolan to come and witness the treaty negotiations and write down their understanding of what occurred. And so the Papam Treaty is what this translator who was hired by the Anishinaabe leaders recorded.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So what were the principal documentary sources that you used to reconstruct this history, and how did these mesh or not with your interview sources?
1: So I had the incredible privilege of working with several elders at my ancestral community of Nisetchuan and Anishinaabe Nation. I also had the incredible honor and privilege of learning from Elder Alice Kelly, who was appointed by the community, by consensus, uh, to help guide me through the interview process and help me figure out how to re-enter the community as a non-status, off-reserve woman trying to uncover her family history. And as these interviews unfolded, one thing that I learned is that the elders had some hesitancy about me citing their words at length. They were happy for me to learn my family history, to understand how my ancestors were dispossessed from the land, why I was third generation raised in town. But there was some fear that if I published sections of our interview transcripts at length, that they could be misread or misinterpreted by representatives of Canada or Ontario. And I think Part of that that concern had to do with an understanding of the space that the stories were born in. So there was a you know, fear that somebody from outside of the territory, perhaps somebody working in an urban center, might not understand the difference between uh, a dirty water fish and a clean water fish. And that language isn't a direct reference to sort of pollutants or the potential toxicity of the water. What they're referring to is sedimentation levels. So walleye is considered a clean water fish, whereas sucker can survive in a different habitat. And the change of the type of fish species available is one of the changes that people associated with hydroelectric development but they were afraid if you didn't understand the fish and the fish needs here that those teachings might be lost. And so I was asked to use the stories to guide my understanding, but again to manage the, the excerpts that I was publishing. And so I started turning to, to colonial records. I looked at the Kimnora Minor and News, a local newspaper, which was hugely valuable. And the other interviews helped to guide my approach to that source. So the knowledge keepers told me that First Nations issues, Anishinaabe issues, very rarely made front page news. And so I started to read the back pages in the news, the gossip columns, and it was there that I found evidence of trade, of the use of ice roads for, for medical purposes, and also of drownings. And so it was the back pages of the newspaper and this elder teaching that our nation wasn't considered, you know, worth a headline that, that shaped my ability to find some of these snippets to, to reconstruct the larger story. So I, yeah, I think that that's a really good start. And also, um, as heartbreaking as these records were to access just their, their origin point is directly tied to that history of aggressive civilization, schools, uh, residential school records of uh, marriages and of births and of baptisms helped me to understand how different reserves in the treaty number three area were interconnected and these kin connections helped me to understand how people would use the rivers and the waterways to travel throughout the territory um, and so I saw sort of an alignment in this colonial record that's born of violence and elder stories about how we lived and loved and used the land to stay connected.
0: Can you describe the household economy of Anishinaabe families on the Winnipeg River in the late 19th and early 20th century? And in terms of that first wave of development, including the Norman Dam and subsequently the Norman Powerhouse on the North shore of Lake of the Woods that so affected the way of life in this area. So
1: traditionally we had a seasonal cyclical economy. And during the the spring, you would uh, gather your your maple uh, sugar you do your sugar bush work, um, and then you would have your spring fish runs, and that would move into planting your gardens. And from planting your gardens, you might move into harvesting your medicines, and then harvesting your garden, and then harvesting manomen, also known as wild rice then you would have your whitefish run in the fall and you would want to harvest and, and preserve that whitefish to help you survive the winter. And then during the winter months, when the weather is a little colder and animals are growing their winter coats, you transition into your winter hunting and your winter trapping, um, and your storytelling season. And then the spring cycle would begin again. Now, some families also participated in what, uh, John us might call the medicinal um, economy, and that meant that wage work, if and when available, would be incorporated as part of these seasonal rounds. And in treaty number three territory, what that often looked like was folks acting as fishing guides for summer camps. Um, and fishing guides would often be active between Victoria Day in, in May um, and then sort of September long. And then folks would bring those wages home and do whatever they can to kind of tap into the Monoman harvest at the end of that season. So you're incorporating your wage labor directly into your seasonal rounds. Um, in terms of how did the, the Norman Dam affect the, the seasonal economy? The Norman Dam had the biggest impact upstream of, of the Winnipeg River. Mm-hmm and um, it's because it raised the waters on the Lake of the Woods significantly. And this flooded out garden islands that were essential to feeding Anishinaabe families on the lakeside. Um, it was devastating for communities in Minnesota, the, the lower lying agricultural lands, uh, off of Lake of the Woods because those were flooded. And uh, in the 1890s, Shortly after the, the Norman Dam began operations, we can actually see my many greats grandfather in his position as chief petitioning the Indian agent and trying to raise awareness that the Norman Dam was flooding out monoman crops, wild rice crops on the lake side. And so it, it did cause food insecurity uh, for, for families in the region. And monoman is really essential to surviving. Uh, the harsh winters in this part of the world, it's a, a complex carbohydrate that can be paired with lean proteins like fish uh, and rabbit. And you can survive the winter on that. There, there, it's enough of a nutrient-rich diet that you can get through sort of higher fat uh, foods are, are unavailable. So the loss of that food really made the winters more difficult.
0: Now, the International Joint Commission conducted a cost-benefit analysis on, and it was called Lake of the Woods Reference, Um, and they did this in 1912. And I would like to know two things. First, uh, were the Anishinaabe consulted during the International Joint Commission study, and what was the actual outcome of this study and recommendations?
1: In the documents that I've seen, the United States did a much better job at representing Anishinaabe voices. I think that the Canadians failed in large part uh, in this regard. So there was a belief during this time that the Canadian government, particularly the Department of Indian Affairs, could represent Anishinaabe voices And under federal law, under the Indian Act at this time, First Nations peoples were defined as wards of the state. And so when you look through the Canadian records, you see statements like, you know, the Indian agent was sent out to consult for the Indians and, you know, try and figure out what their concerns were, but you don't actually see uh, Anishinaabe people being able to represent themselves and to voice their own concerns. And I I think that that was a a huge failure in that treaty relationship.
0: So connected to this hydroelectric development was a, a fair amount of pulp and paper development in the area. How did this pulp and paper industry affect the household economy of the Anishinaabe?
1: The International Joint Commission concluded that the levels on Lake of the Woods could fluctuate within about a five-foot range without the need for active consultation. And, and, and their vision of consultation at this time didn't include First Nations. This was really consultation between Canada and the United States. And five feet can make a huge difference in the traditional economy right? If the water levels are raised significantly after muskrat, uh, which are essential to sort of the, the trapping and, and, and fur trade economy, have built their houses. Muskrat don't have teeth like beaver. They can't chew their way out and they, they will drown in their dens. Uh, for monomen, monomen likes water uh, of about one to three feet. So if you raise the water five feet, you risk drowning the crop. And you can drown monomen at, at different points in its life cycle. So very early in the season, the, the seed has enough energy to to germinate. But once it's germinated, it needs the sun's rays to photosynthesize and be able to grow above the water to break the surface. And if the water is raised too deep, it, it, it doesn't get to break the surface. It never gets to grow long enough and strong enough and high enough to, to ripen. Um and the International Joint Commission, when it decided on five feet, wasn't taking into account, right, all these, let's call them extra market uh, activities that sustain the Anishinaabe. And it decided that it needed to be able to, to use water, to use the Lake of the Woods as a reservoir uh, that could be used in large part to power industry at the North Shore Lake of the Woods. And one of the things that the Norman Dam powered was the pulp and paper mill. And in the post-war era, it was the Ontario-Minnesota pulp and paper mill who was um, operating operating, or responsible for operations. And the Ontario-Minnesota pulp and paper mill, when it was built, the solution to pollution was dilution. So there wasn't an effective uh, waste management system.
0: Basically, what you mean by dilution is it's put into a large body of water and you just hope that somehow it disappears. Is that right?
1: That's correct. Yeah. So the Ontario, Minnesota, uh, and Minnesota pulp and paper mill assumed that the Winnipeg River would water down and carry away the waste. And so they dumped sulfite liqueur uh, into the R- Winnipeg River, into Rideout Bay which would flow downstream towards Nisichuan and Anishinaabe Nation. They had something called a, a wet barking process. So they would strip the trees of the bark um, and then all that bark just got dumped into the Winnipeg River. And there were deposits that were found in the 20th century of bark that were deeper than a, a standing human, so between five and six feet. Now, the creation of White Dog Falls Generating Station in the 1950s allowed the Ontario, Minnesota pulp and paper mill to double its newsprint production. And so we have more sulfite like here, more bark being dumped into the river. But another thing that happened here was an expanded mill meant expanded employment opportunities and it led to urban growth. And in the post-war era, the city of Kenora didn't have a wastewater treatment center And so human waste was also dumped directly into the Winnipeg River.
0: Okay, well, that that brings me to the second wave of development in the post-war period. And at that time, in the 1950s, you saw the building of the White Dog Falls Generating Station by the Hydroelectric Power Commission of Ontario. And uh, you note in the book, and I quote, using the uh, uh, Indian and Northern Affairs designation, Dahl's 38C Indian Reserve uh, was now located really among or amidst three hydroelectric generating stations. Perhaps I'm wrong, but this development seemed to be even more disruptive than the developments before the Second World War. Am I right about this? And if so, Why?
1: Yes, Greg, you, you are correct. The establishment of White Dog Falls Generating Station was devastating for the and Anishinaabe Nation. So water continued to flow from Lake of the Woods into the Winnipeg River, and both the Kenora Powerhouse and the Norman Dam would release water from Lake of the Woods in an attempt to produce uh, electricity, but also uh, to regulate water levels on, on Lake of the Woods. And before White Dog Falls Generating Station, this water could flow freely downstream. But White Dog Falls Generating Station turned the stretch of river uh, between itself and the Norman Dam into a giant reservoir. And so what happened was, is White Dog Falls Generating Station was holding water released from Lake the Woods. So since 1958, the water levels in uh, my ancestral territory are about three feet higher, about one meter higher than they were previously. And this has been devastating uh, for monoman crop growth. It's led to the devaluation uh, of reserve lands because uh, territories have become waterlogged. There's swampification um, on reserve. And also it was this construction that facilitated the release of methylmercury into the river system. So prior to the construction of White Dog Falls generating station around 1950, the Dahls Channel, which was classified as a bottleneck in the river by colonists, was blasted open. And this was to um, eliminate to, to widen the channel so that water could sort of flow more quickly and more efficiently um, from a hydroelectric standpoint downstream, and this meant that there's fewer rapids available to aerate the water. It's a, a slower moving water. It's it's a, it's a reservoir now, uh, and then when you combine that with all this dumping of organic material right? All that wood waste and then the sulfite liqueur that sulfite reducing bacteria can use to decompose these organic inputs. Well, sulfite reducing bacteria, these anaerobic bacteria, they thrive in low oxygen environments. um, And, you know, we have the oxygen content of the river decreasing as rapids are no longer aerating the water to the same extent. And the water is no longer flowing to the same extent because of the, the dam it's this perfect condition for these anaerobic bacteria to become responsible for decomposition and and as a natural byproduct of their work methylmercury is released into the system and that methylmercury gets into you know tiny bugs that are eaten by smaller fish that are eaten by predatory fish that are eaten by us and it's you know this this perfect storm that allowed methylmercury to bioaccumulate up the food chain.
0: Okay, and I know that that had an enormous impact on, on people living in the area that were previously dependent on the fisheries. One of the most interesting arguments that you make, and it's, it's very much contrary to what many past and current scholars have argued is that reserve lands such as the ones you're talking about were not and are not inherently unsustainable. Uh, the assumption generally is that they are unsustainable from an economic standpoint. Can you explain what you mean by this argument?
1: Yes. I, you know, this is a question that makes me take pause because it can be, it can be difficult to unpack. So I think in Canada, we have two dangerous myths about Indian reserves. The first myth is that reserves are inherently um, unsustainable because they are removed from the market economy. Mm -hmm. And the second myth is that reserves are located on subpar lands and are therefore unsustainable. And in some cases this is true. So if you read Sarah Carter's Lost Harvest, which is a book I, I highly recommend, she talks about how you know I, I how reserves were sometimes located away from railroads. They were strategically located to make it difficult for First Nations to sell surplus goods on the open market, and that this was intended to give settlers an advantage. It's also true that in many cases, reserve lands were located on subpar farming lands so that settlers could have access to the most arable fields. But in some cases, like the case of Nisechewan and Anishinaabe Nation, we had a functioning economy. We had a monoman uh, economy. You know, the elders report bringing in about half a million pounds of monomen from the river. Uh, so this was a, a huge economy, right? We were initially in, in fur rich lands, right? With muskrat to harvest, um, and, and to sell. And the living was good here. And, and I think that that's evidence by my many greats' grandfather, who was born in 1820 and died in the 1900s. He he lived to over 90 years old. And we look at the records of federal surveyors like Simon J. Dawson, and he's talking about the abundance of food here, and that the people are well nourished. And so we do see a richness of life in the territory, I think what's made reserves unsustainable and the structural poverty that we see today has deep roots in the Indian Act, which is just an incredibly violent piece of legislation. And I'm just going to talk about the the Indian Act that's active today and and in this moment. There's a section on Indian monies. And the section on Indian monies says that First Nations must get the approval of a colonial agent before spending uh, large amounts of funding. The Department of Indian Affairs needs to decide whether the investment is truly in the you know, the best interest uh, of the First Nation. And Indian monies are, are, that refers to revenue that's been gained from the sale of reserve lands or reserve resources. So, First Nations can't decide how to spend revenue, independently decide how to spend revenue generated off reserve lands. Canada can veto those decisions. And then, also, when we, when we look at the Indian Act today, uh, there's a section uh, about liens. So, because reserve lands are held in trust by the Crown, First Nations can't apply for financing from capital markets. They can't apply for loans, large-scale loans, because banks can't put a lien on reserve lands. And so that also makes it really difficult to independently build infrastructure. And so what we have are communities who are just hemmed in by these colonial Laws, So I don't think it's that the reserves are unsustainable. I think it's that for over a century, we have been denied the right to develop infrastructure to make them so.
0: It certainly goes contrary to what has become the conventional wisdom, but I've often wondered about that myself. And obviously it depends on uh, the type of reserve and it depends what you mean by sustainability in terms of the type of economy that you want to create and i think that those assumptions are really worth re-examining so i want to thank you brittany and i would like to thank your dad Alan, for joining us today it's been a wonderful discussion
1: thank you so much for having us it was an absolute pleasure
0: My guest today was Brittany Luby, she is the author of Damn, The Politics of Loss and Survival in Anishinaabe Territory, published by the University of Manitoba Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. And we want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshaldon. This interview was recorded on May 14th, 2021. It
2: was produced by Jessica Schmidt.